Hey, Rarecast listeners, I wanted to let you know that Global Genes Report Next 2022, Redefining the Possible, is now available for free download. This is our annual report on the rare disease landscape. Learn how patients are taking ownership of their own data, how artificial intelligence and new sequencing technologies are accelerating the diagnosis of rare diseases, and how patient organizations are moving up the value chain and taking an increasingly active role in drug development. To download the report, go to the Global Genes website, globalgenes.org, and under the Resources tab, click on Media Hub. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. When Julia Vitarello learned that her daughter Mila had the CLN7 form of the deadly neurodegenerative condition Batten disease, it set her off on a search for a treatment that resulted in the development of a customized antisense oligonucleotide. In the wake of Mila's case, a movement has emerged to develop so-called N-of-1 therapies for people with ultra-rare conditions. Vitarello, along with Boston Children's Hospital researcher Timothy Yu, who developed the ASO to treat Mila, has co-founded the N Equal One Collaborative, an international group seeking to enable the development of N of One therapies to treat the thousands of patients in need. We spoke to Vitarello, CEO of Mila's Miracle Foundation and co-founder of the N Equal One Collaborative, about the new organization, the issues it's trying to address, and what it would take to enable the development of individualized therapies broadly for patients with ultra-rare conditions. Julia, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Danny. Thanks for having me. We're going to discuss the N Equal One Collaborative, the work it's doing through its international network to address challenges of delivering individualized antisense oligonucleotides to patients in need. I'd like to start with your own story, which led to its creation. I suspect many of our listeners will have some familiarity with your daughter, Mila, who had the CLN7 form of the rare neurodegenerative condition, Batten's disease. What was Mila like? Mila was, you know, born completely healthy. She was really outgoing. Um, she was, you know, I, we live in Colorado, and so she was a skier and a rock climber by the time she was two years old. Uh, you know, she was like any other kid. You know, she was swimming and singing songs and, you know, playing with all her friends, and everything seemed completely normal. You know, she was my first child, so I didn't have anything to compare it to. But um, she was extremely outgoing and very verbal and very coordinated. And um, everything seemed to be, you know, fine for the first few years of her life. When did you first discover a problem and, and how did her condition progress? Around like three and a half years old, she started because we hiked a lot and we would hike for kind of hours on end. I started noticing that her feet were interned. 
Um, but the orthopedic doctor said, oh yeah, that, you know, that happens, that's tibial torsion or something. And, you know, kids outgrow that and a percentage of kids have that. But then with time, um, I think around four years old, she started kind of stuttering, but it didn't sound like typical stuttering. And I brought her to a stuttering therapist and she was a little confused because Mila would start to say the first few words of a sentence and then stop and kind of get stuck on that word, which was off, often became mommy. So she would kind of repeat mommy over and over again. Um, it really kind of drove me crazy and I didn't understand what was going on. And um, and then with time, you know, then she started kind of like sticking her face up really close to her toys. She would be putting little figurines on a little tiny house and she would get really close to them. Um, and, and so I brought her to, you know, the ophthalmologist and the optometrist and they all said, well, you know, looks, looks like things are okay. You know, we'll just keep an eye on her over time. And each of the different doctors um, or therapists kind of explained that she would grow out of whatever symptoms she had. But I had a little piece of paper that I started, um, it was kind of a little scrap piece of paper and I wrote neurological symptoms, question mark. And I, to be honest, I, I barely knew what a neurological symptom was at that time. Um, but it seemed that there was too many things that were, um, that, that were going on over time. And they all seemed like, well, I wondered if they were related to her brain. And, um, and so I would bring them to each appointment and honestly, really none of these doctors could see past their own very specific area. They, 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 they couldn't look at the fact that it was not just a vision problem and it was not just an orthopedic problem, you know, or not just a speech problem. So, you know, in hindsight, I, I certainly wish they had realized that if you have one more, more than one potentially neurological, you know, symptom, like you should probably dive into it a little bit more. How old was Mila when you got a diagnosis and what were you told about the condition? She had just turned six years old. Um, I was, uh, I remember going on a run right around her sixth birthday and I was just crying the entire run. I could barely breathe because I was sobbing so hard. And, you know, that was a sign to me that I don't usually cry like that. And certainly not when I'm running. And it just was a sign to me that like something was obviously much more serious than what people were making it out to be. And I really couldn't take it anymore because I had dragged her to, I think I counted at some point, like a hundred different doctor and therapy appointments over the course of, you know, two years or so, two, two and a half years. And I, I literally couldn't do it anymore. And I had an infant son and I was alone dragging these two around sometimes on airplanes to various places in the country. And um, with no answers. And so I, I brought her into the ER of Children's Hospital Colorado, which is the closest hospital to us. And, um, you know, they were on high alert because they shown a, they, they turned the lights off and put a flashlight in her eyes and she didn't respond to it. And then they said, oh, I think she had a seizure. And I didn't even, I had no idea she had a seizure. I'd never seen anything. I barely knew what a seizure was, um, which ended her in the hospital, you know, landed her in the hospital for a week of tests. And uh, that ended up in kind of two possible, you know, diseases that they thought she might have, both of which were terrible. And then the genetic test came back, you know, a lot has changed. That was in the end of 2016. So obviously now you kind of can just run a genetic test, but at the time there had to be this battery of other clinical tests before. And um, after that, we got this diagnosis about a week later of Batten disease and, um, I was very relieved at first, like a huge weight was lifted off my shoulder. 
shoulders because I, I just thought that finally there was actually an answer and everyone had kind of made me feel like I was crazy, to be honest, and that Mila was just going to grow out of these symptoms. And and so then I started learning and reading about Batten's disease and I, I you know, <laughs> there was pretty much nothing worse than I could imagine, you know, than reading that a disease was going to take my daughter's vision completely and her words and her ability to eat and stand and walk and um, swallow. And eventually she was going to die, you know, in just a few years time. So it was, you know, (laughs) devastating. I mean, I just went in my closet every single day, 10 times a day and just cried as hard as I could and hope that my kids couldn't hear me. Rarecast listeners may recall a past episode we did with Timothy Yu of Boston's Children's Hospitals. You, you, listeners can find that episode as number 301 in our archive. How did you connect with Tim, and, and how did the potential for a customized antisense oligonucleotide come about? Yeah, you know, what happened was when Mila was diagnosed, um, Batten disease is autosomal recessive, which means she had to have received a mutation in the MFSD8 gene, which is associated with Batten CLN7. Um, she had to receive one mutation from her mom and one from her dad. Um, so uh, they could only find one. And they reran these genetic tests a number of times in these clinical labs, and they could only find one. And I was told by Mila's geneticist, correctly so, that at the time, that diving deeper would be hard to find the other mutation and that I should probably try to just accept this diagnosis because clinically she looked, she fit the the mold for, you know, the, the CLN7 Batten patient of six years old. Um, and she, one mutation that had been seen before they found. So it made total sense to him. And, and he was correct in saying that it would be very, very hard to find a lab that might be able to find the missing mutation. And even if they did, um, it might be in an area that would might be really hard to even prove that it was disease causing um, and he, uh, despite giving me that difficult news, he also was very helpful in, um, making sure that as I pried and said, I really want to know more, he, you know, tried his best to help me and put me in touch with some other labs and some people and, but nothing, nothing happened. So I finally went to, you know, Facebook and just said, look, I've done my homework here. It looks like whole genome sequencing, which once again, five years ago at the time was, you know, very unusual. And I said, it looks like, from what I can understand, that's what I need to do because it's going to be my very best shot at finding this missing mutation. And I I need to be sure, I need to find this mutation because I need to be sure that Mila, in fact, has Batten CLN7 so I can you know, work on a gene replacement therapy or something to go after it. And I needed to be sure she, in fact, had that, that disease. Um, and then my son, Aslan, was only two years old at the time and Mila had been perfectly normal at two. And so I was terrified every day and every night, you know, I put him to bed in his crib, I would just be bawling because I just thought, you know, now he's going to lose his vision and his words and he's going to die too. And, you know, I'm going to have motherhood, you know, taken from me. And, and so I needed to be able to test him and I couldn't test him unless I had fully test him unless I had both mutations. Um, and so I, I went on Facebook and had a, made a plea and, you know, and I grew up on the East coast and I knew people that had gone to Harvard. And so I just said, Hey, Harvard, has a lab where they do whole genome sequencing, but it takes five months and $25,000 and I, I need help, you know, getting in really fast. I don't have five months. And that landed in a, through my amazing, you know, best friend from Amherst college, um, Jess Flynn, who's a doctor. 
um, in Boston. And she reposted it to a group in Facebook of female mom physicians. It was uh, some, some closed Facebook group. And that ended up then on Dr. Timothy Yu's wife's desk, which then that night got brought home to him. Um, and he, you know, looked at it and then sent me an email and said, Hey, I saw your story and I have a lab that looks for difficult to find mutations. And I'd love to try to help you out. How long did it take from the time the decision was made to develop an ASO for Mila to her first dose? Yeah, I mean, in the first few months right after um, uh, meeting meeting Dr. Yu, which was, by the way, just a month after Mila was diagnosed, um, they spent the next few months saying, hey, keep working on your gene replacement therapy. You know, I had started Mila's Miracle Foundation. I had started working on gene replacement therapy because it was the only option. Um, and during that time, he, Dr. Yu and his, and his team um, started looking into an antisense oligonucleotide um, after figuring out what Mila's missing mutation was. And when they found that missing mutation, um, you know, it, it ended up opening up something that they had never imagined, which was a possible therapeutic, which was not what they were looking for. They were just trying to help me find the missing mutation. And that possible therapeutic was an antisense oligonucleotide or an ASO similar to Spinraza um, for another devastating disease in children called spinal muscular atrophy. And that that had been a very promising drug that had been approved by the FDA like the exact same month that Mila was diagnosed. So it was on everyone's mind and it was a game changer in neurology. Um, meant that neurologists could actually potentially like stop diseases and not just kind of treat symptoms. And so uh, Mila's mutation looked like it was amenable to a very similar type of ASO. And that kind of came up you know, in the spring of 2017. So a few months after I met um, Dr. Dr. Yu. And when he brought that idea up, um, that was something around April, I believe, 2017. And, you know, by January of the next year um, of 2018, we had moved to Boston um, and to speed up an enormous amount of work, which I'm sure Dr. Yu talked about in his podcast um, that went into making Mielison happen. It, it, it turned out that they were able to design an ASO. They were able to test it on Mila's cells and show in a number of different independent labs that um, it was restoring health to Mila's cells and the lysosomal buildup was going away. And, you know, on top of that, getting FDA uh, green light to move forward after, you know, manufacturing it and, and, and testing it in animals. And, you know, it was done at breakneck speed and, you know, in only seven or eight months, it went from an idea to um, to an actual treatment that Mila was beginning to receive in only one year from her diagnosis. Mila died in February 2021. It was a loss felt throughout the rare disease community as many people closely followed her story. You, you mentioned some of the scientific results of using Millicent and the benefits she got from it, but did you see visible changes? Did it was there evidence that it slowed the progression of the condition? Yeah, there, there it was. It was actually um, some things were very noticeable, and other things were subtle. Um, I didn't know what to expect going into it. I just knew that there had been thirty years of work, you know, in animals that you know on ASOs, and that you know the risk of treating Mila was that this was a new drug, and that um, you know we didn't know much about it, but that there was a lot known about ASOs, and and the risk of not treating Mila was very, very black and white. It was that she was going to lose all of her abilities and die, you know, very soon. 
and she had been spiraling down um, right before uh, Mielison. So just about a month and a half before, or two months before, she took this very sudden kind of cliff, typical maybe of Batten disease, where she was um, started having vis- vi- visible seizures, and they got more frequent and they lasted longer and longer, to the point where there were sometimes you know up to thirty a day, and they were lasting two minutes each, and she was shaking and 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 smashing her arms and legs on tables and was covered in bruises and. She had gotten a G-tube because um, she could no longer be eating by mouth. She could eat a little bit pureed food, but it was becoming less and less to the point where um, leading up to Mielison, she barely was eating anything by mouth um, because she was choking on it. Um, And she had begun slumping over a lot, um, which made it very hard for her to sit up, even propped up. Um, it made her hard when I would hold her from behind, which she could no longer kind of stand by herself. She, she, um, you know, taking steps, um, was very hard for her because she was slumped over. And, and most importantly, when I would sing the same songs and read the same books at the exact spots that she like thought were hilarious. Cause Mila was really like just such, she laughed and smiled all the time, her whole life. And she was starting to do that a little less. Um, and when, once we started Mielison within a few months, you know, her seizures were the most obvious thing. And that's what Dr. Yu, you know, obviously ended up publishing on in the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, that was very black and white in the sense that they got much less frequent throughout the day. And then they got much less severe. They lasted a shorter time um, to the point where as I was monitoring them religiously every day um, and keeping track of them in a file, um, they got down to the point where there were days she didn't have any at all. And even when she did have some, they were like, you could, if you walked into my home, you would not even notice that she had any seizures. I mean, she was barely maybe move a t- her head a tiny, tiny bit for a few seconds, a few times a day, you know? So that was drastic and it really allowed for a really big improvement in quality of life. Um, you know, not having seizures, means that you can actually like go out of the house and you can like sit at a table and not be covered in bruises. And we can, you know, not, not be scared of choking on something exactly in that moment when you feed her, you know, that she's you know having a seizure. And so that really helped. But other things were that she sat up a lot. She held her body and her head up um, stronger and straighter, which means she could sit unattended, which she hadn't done before um, for a while. It meant that she could take steps. She started lifting her feet actually. So there's kind of stronger legs too. She could lift her feet and hold her body up with me holding her from behind. And she could go up the stairs. Like it wasn't all the time and every day, but it happened a number of times. And, um, that she could go all the way to the top of the stairs, lifting her, alternating her feet. And other times it was just halfway. Those are, you know, movement is important. So she felt like she could move around and I would hold her from behind and she would take steps around the house. And, um, And then obviously, you know, she started eating by mouth, which was huge. So she ended up doing that for a number of years and she ate pureed food by mouth. And, and so that was, you know, she was able to enjoy the taste of food and not have it go through a G tube in her stomach. Once again, you know, really helping her quality of life. Um, And most importantly for me was just that, like when I would read the books and sing the songs, it was not perfect. She didn't, you know, laugh and smiled every single time, but it was certainly, like an increase, you know, and she really was just more alert and and responsive to things. And that was hugely important to me. What is it about antisense oligonucleotides that make them well-suited for this type of customized approach to treat people who have an ultra-rare genetic disease? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I my preface here is that I'm not a doctor or scientist, but I have been around this obviously the last you know five years, um, so I can give you a non-scientific reason why, um, which is that you know I, the way I explain it is, it, I think that in the past we have treated diseases and conditions and genes, so larger groups of people. Now that we know what, um, in many cases, what the underlying mutation is, the, what Mila's story has shown is that you can target or customize a drug, in this case an ASO, for the actual underlying mutation. In her case, no one else in the world had her mutation, you know, besides me and my mother who passed it down to me. Um, but there was no other no other child with Batten disease that had um that had the same mutation. So it ended up being that this drug targeted her very specific mutation. Um, and she was the only person in the world who could, could benefit from that. Hence why it was called Mielicin. It was named after her because it was only, only she could benefit from it. Um, and ASOs are designed around a very specific, um, and in her type of ASO, a splice modulating ASO is looking very specifically at, um, the, the, the mutation causing her disease. And it was kind of cloaking it or covering it up. Um, so my, my way of describing it is that um, by cloaking it, it allowed it, it allowed her, um, her coding region of her, um, of her, of her bad gene to read correctly and actually produce that protein. Whereas before it couldn't um, because of this mutation. So it cloaked it and hit it, which allowed for that to happen. Um, and so in it, why is it well suited is because it's kind of a programmable type of uh, modality. So it allows for another child to have an ASO made for their very specific mutation, which is different than Mila's. Um, but the kind of the entire process, A to Z, of like designing and testing and bringing that ASO to the child um, is exactly the same. The only, and even how you manufacture it and everything about it, how you administer it, the only thing that's different is that the actual um, design of the ASO um, for Mila would be different than the design of the ASO, you know, the sequence of, of letters uh, would be different than for, for a different child. Um, and so you can kind of program them and swap them out, um, but the rest remains the same. So that's why AS, that's one of the reasons ASOs is, is particularly interesting when it comes to an individualized approach. Early on, you and Tim discussed creating an organization that would help others do what you did. You helped co-found the N Equal One Collaborative. We've seen both nonprofits and for-profit efforts emerge to create ASOs for ultra-rare conditions. What is the N Equal One Collaborative and what is it seeking to do? Yeah, you know, when Tim and I, uh, after Mila was treated, um, I would say within the year after Mila was treated, I think it really hit both of us that um, we had been just trying to find a treatment for Mila to help her. But it was never that we were looking for an N of one that, that didn't even exist really before. Um, so we realized, you know, that Mila had been the first person in the world to receive an entirely new or novel um, genetic treatment that was targeted to one individual person. And that's kind of what caught the attention of, of the entire scientific and medical community. Um, and started realizing uh, that this could be applicable across uh, many diseases. And that was something different, you know, because in rare disease where, look, I'm a rare disease mother. It's like, we're desperate to have treatments. And, and I know that going gene by gene, you know, it, with 7,000 or more rare diseases is going to take like, a, you know, thousands of years possibly. 
And so having this programmable um, ASO approach to rare disease started seeming like a really interesting and promising way of uh, a very different way of approaching treating um, patients with rare disease. And so in one of our presentations that Tim and I gave, which we gave many of together and we still do, um, where he kind of gives the scientific part and I give a little bit more of the part of like having lived this experience, um, is is we we had a slide, I remember in one of our presentations that uh, Dr. Yu put together, um, where it showed like Boston Children's and then it showed Colorado Children's because we were trying to move Mila's treatment, which we ended up doing closer to home, which made life a lot easier for us. After a few years, we did that. Um, and then it showed, you know, like maybe Stanford or another, you know, academic medical center. And, and in the middle, there was a circle that said N of one hub, you know, and there was this, this, this was a slide to say, well, what if we, what if we continued having more and more academic medical centers like Boston Children's and more PIs like Tim do this? And what if this starts to grow and become something that cuts across many rare diseases? And that slide ended up being, you know, what kicked off um, the idea and many, many conversations with academic institutions kind of around the world, um, including the Oligonucleotide Therapeutic Society, which is an academic society, you know, that works on ASOs. Um, and and working with them, kind of, we, we decided, well, let's just eventually, this was in the summer of last year in 2021, um, uh, of launching the end of one collaborative. And so when we launched it, the purpose of it was very specifically to see like, how do we make what we did for Mila something that can be applied across many rare diseases? Like how do we, you know, make individualized medicines, you know, safe, which is really important, but really rapidly accessible to kind of patients worldwide. Um, and, and, and what we envisioned was we envisioned, um, these individualized medicine centers kind of in academic medical centers, maybe around the world where patients like Mila could come in. And, you know, our dream is that within, you know, six months, uh, you know, you'd come back and there would be, it would be routine, you know, in six months and, you know, and $600,000, I'm just kind of making this up and, you know, covered by insurance, you know, a patient could come back and receive a customized treatment that's targeting their, actually their, their, their conditions underlying genetic cause and really make this routine and not one off. Uh, Who's involved in the collaborative and how is it funded? So the, the end of one collaborative is a group of really amazing, basically volunteers right now. So it's primarily volunteer, uh, Dr. Yu and myself. There's a lot of other of his academic colleagues from many different institutions really honestly, all over the entire world, people that have followed Mila's story, um, who really would like to do what what Tim has done, and they'd like to learn more. So it kind of came together as people voluntarily, and, you know, in kind of a scrappy way, kind of just like coming together and being like, all right, let's start some workshops, let's start to talk about what are all the different pieces that are needed from starting to identify patients all the way through the trial itself. And let's start breaking these into pieces and working through them and putting them down on paper and basically um, collecting people around the world who are, you know, high level, um, you know, relatively, um, you know, hand selected um, neurologists and geneticists who um, who really are interested in, in, in doing what Tim did for Mila, you know, and getting them all together in one place and kind of one hub around individualized medicine, starting with ASOs. 
you sketched out a, a type of vision for how this ultimately may work. A, a lot has happened since the work on Millicent, but where are the bottlenecks that exist today that need to be addressed, particularly given that in most cases we're talking about uh, progressive and deadly conditions where time is critical? You know, Mila was treated. Since then, there's been a handful, not even, of, of children with, with, with very devastating diseases that have been treated with an N of one, like novel new, you know, ASO. But when I think about this, I look at the statistics, Global Genes has done a great job with this, you know, and you see 400 million people worldwide with uh, rare diseases, half of those are children, so 200 million of those. And then, you know, of those, you have 60 million of them are children that are going to die before the age of five. And, you know, I spent my 20s in Italy. I lived there. And the population of Italy today is 60 million. So when I think about the entire country of Italy, every single person being a child with a rare disease that's going to die before the age of five, it seems so overwhelming. It keeps me up at night. You know, and I think this is like global health crisis. Now, 80% of those are genetic diseases. So it may it may not be that 80% are I'm sorry, it may not be that the entire 60 million are, are, are children that are dying before the age of five with genetic disease, but it's still somewhere around their 60 or 50 or 40. It doesn't really quite matter um, what that number is. It's tens of millions um, worldwide. And the way I look at this is that there's an estimated maybe 10% uh, scientists, researchers believe of mutations could be amenable to a, um, an ASO like Mielicent. And if you want to be really conservative and say, let's say only 1% of those um, patients could be amenable to a, an individualized ASO like Mielicent, um, 1% of that 60 million or 50 million or 40 million, you know, we're still talking, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of dying children who could benefit from a drug like Mielicent. And that does not include children that die later after five years old, like Mila. That doesn't include... Um, lifelong debilitating diseases. It doesn't include adults. It doesn't include any other form of ASO, of which there are other types of ASOs, the allele or gene knockdown, which is a different type. And it doesn't include other modalities like CRISPR that are really following right behind us and could certainly be programmable as well. And so what does that mean? It means that to me, there are millions of people with rare diseases who could benefit from an individualized medicine approach. Um, and so the question I land on and the one that keeps me up at night is how do we get from Mila to millions? And that brings me to your question about the bottlenecks. And, you know, one of the big bottlenecks is that our current regulatory path was um, it's no one's fault. It's simply that it was never designed for this new paradigm. It's designed for um, a drug targeting a condition or a disease, um, and it might be one drug for tens or hundreds of thousands of people or more. And now, if you think of um, this new paradigm, what if we had tens of thousands of drugs, each targeting one or a handful or two handfuls of, of people? That is drastically different. And in order to face that, it means that we need to, I'd like to believe that we can kind of modernize the existing regulatory path. Um, I will say that it's very hard for me to imagine doing that because this is so different than what we're used to and the risk benefit 
analysis, um, which is kind of the base of the house where we kind of pour the cement that we're going to build this individualized medicine house on top of, you know, is very different than the risk benefit analysis for a drug that's going to sit on a shelf for tens or hundreds of thousands of people. Um, and so I'd like to believe we can modernize the FDA and EMA and other parts of the world, you know, regulatory paths, um, um, because it'll be a lot easier than having to come up with an entirely new path. Um, but it's going to require um, really um, getting creative and thinking of what is correct and what's appropriate for this new paradigm. What is proportionate to um, the fact that this that these drugs are made for only Mila or it doesn't really matter to me whether it's one or six or 12 or 15. It's extremely very, very, very small groups of people. And the repercussions of that drug are, you know, have, are very limited um, and therefore have to be thought about differently. And so I think that really, honestly, the regulatory path, or, or maybe I say it in a more, in a broader way is, is that the time, the technology and the science is there and we have more and more and more and more patients being diagnosed with rare disease um, it's the access to that is, is getting access to that, which currently looks like the regulatory path. That's the biggest, um, uh, the bottleneck right now. You talk about from Mila to millions, uh, let, let's talk about scaling in a little bit more detail. And, and I want to ask you not only about regulatory, but about financial issues and about manufacturing. And maybe we can take each of those separately. Uh, on, on the financial front, how do we take cost out of this process and what would it take to get payers to recognize these therapies and provide reimbursement? Yeah, this is this is really good framing. Um, I'm, I appreciate you kind of bringing it up like this because it's true. Is how, how do we get from Mila to Millions is broken down into a few different areas. Um, one of them is that... Um, and I'll just say them in my out loud here is one of them, there needs to be good science. And that's the N of one collaborative, um, which we've just spoken about. We have to have a place where we kind of challenge and establish each step along the way, which I've just mentioned. And we need full transparency of data. So like the good data, the bad data, we need to make sure that's fully transparent. That starts with Mila's data, which I have volunteered and that that's going to be dumped into a database followed by everyone else who hopefully receives an N of one treatment. Otherwise we're in trouble because that data is very, very valuable and we have got to make sure it's transparent and we need more Tim use. And that's the purpose as well of the N of one collaboratives to grow more, you know, Tim use. Um, so more people can do this work. So that's the good science is fundamental. Hence why the N of one collaborative is the first thing that kind of we did. The second thing is I agree with you is we need to have a viable business model with reimbursement that has to be possible and some people talk about this in a way like, well, let's just, you know, it's, it costs about $2 million to do to Mielison. Not for us, it cost us less, but a lot of favors were called in since it was the first time this had been done. But let's call it $2 million. You know, can the economy bear that $2 million? I personally think that's a really bad way of thinking about this because when we're talking about potentially trying to come up with a system where we have thousands, hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of, of, of drugs, each for one or two or six people. Um, it's not appropriate. Why? Because, you know, the manufacturing cost for something like Milicent at the time was somewhere between fifty dollars and $200,000 for a lifetime supply of ASO. Now, those prices have gone up significantly since then. They're still in the hundreds of thousands. But that is extremely low for a lifetime supply of a drug that could be, you know, for, for a dying child, um, let alone for anyone, to be honest, it's very low. Now, obviously the cost of Mielsen is not just manufacturing. 
um, toxicity, you know, tox tests, uh, tox studies, safety studies are a big part of that. And they are massive right now. They're enormous. And in fact, they're completely disproportionate to the fact that only one person is receiving this drug. Um, so one of the big ways to get the cost down is to think of a more appropriate and proportionate um, tox package and, 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 and basically all of the requirements that are needed from uh, the FDA have got to be rethought and be proportionate to this new paradigm so that we do not have to, you know, what I say is we climbed Everest, Mount Everest to make Mielison happen. And, you know, some others can do that as well, but how many people can climb Everest? You know, not that many. And, and it's got to be that mountain has to be significantly lower. It has to be small enough that anyone who could benefit from an individualized ASO should have access to it right now. And so we need to drive down the requirements to be correct and proportionate, still safe, still absolutely safe, but, 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 but correctly proportionate, um, which is going to require a new mindset. Um, and, and I think that will then drive down the costs of um, the various pieces along the way, especially the um, toxicity uh, safety studies. Um, and, and then as that becomes significantly smaller, instead of being 2 million, if it's $600,000 and I'm making that number up now, you know, it's, it's, it's obvious. This is the future. The future is precision medicine and of precision medicine, the kind of the tip of that is this N of one or N of very, very, very small. And it's where we're headed and the insurance companies know that. Um, and so I think if it becomes um, a little bit more manageable and there is a clear regulatory path. And, and one other point that's an important one is that this is reimbursable. Currently, you know, Mielison fell in this no man's land between, um, you know, between research and compassionate use. And um, that didn't really exist before, but it, it's currently not reimbursable. And that needs to absolutely change because if it's not, this is not about making money. You know, I lost my daughter to this. I'm involved in this for no other reason except for that it's it's unethical and incorrect that this technology exists and that children are dying, you know, in the tens of millions and that there's no access between these two. And I want to make sure that there is a sustainable and, and um, model and having academics spend two years, you know, two million dollars and a thousand page IND um with 30 people in their institution working on something for one individual child is not scalable and it's not sustainable. So we absolutely do need a viable business model with, with reimbursement. Um, and I do think that will happen if we have a very appropriate and proportionate regulatory path, like starting now, like we need an on-ramp to get from Miela to millions. Um, we can't wait any longer. It's been four years. The FDA has certainly been thinking about this and, you know, I get the sense they, they want to do right by patients, but is there at some point where you think we could get to either a plug and play model where if you're using the same vector, it's just a matter of swapping out the, the oligonucleotide and that the FDA would, would allow that to go into a human being? Or is it something that we might be able to develop a, a reliable either synthetic model or, or animal model where, you know, this can be done rapidly to clear, clear uh, use in humans? Yeah. You know, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, 
I'm, I'm, I was very happy to see that the FDA issued four guidances around individualized ASOs over the course of 2021. Um, that shows me, and I know this having spoken with the FDA many times over the last few years, that they are very eager to, um, to, to do their very best to turn this into an accessible pathway. And I think it shows that they care. Um, I will say, however, that um, the content of those uh, four draft guidances um, looked awfully similar to um, Mielison. And Mielison was, you know, started four and a half years ago. And uh, there's been two or three children who have received an individualized ASO since then. And that's just not acceptable. It shows that, that, the, that Mount Everest is the same, if not higher. Um, and so I think... Um, we, in order to think about how to be able to make this more routine, we know that the process from A to Z is exactly the same, except for the um, ASO design itself, which is what we, you asked that question earlier, is different, which makes it programmable. So I think that what we do is we still have to gather a lot of data. Only a few people have been treated um, you know, uh, with these individualized ASOs. And ideally, the companies that have worked on larger ASO trials would be allowing for some transparency of their data, because that would certainly help. Um, that might be idealistic to imagine them doing that, but it would certainly be helpful. Um, and I think what we do is we need some sort of pilot that is the kind of on-ramp from Mila to Millions, which allows um, Dr. Yu and many other um, scientists in the N of One Collaborative um, who want to take on these treatments to be able to do it in a safe, but also proportionately like a- appropriate way um, to be able to treat more patients because if we don't have um if there isn't a pilot or if there isn't a way um to be able to do these more rapidly then we are literally not going to treat any children which is unethical and we're not going to have the opportunity to collect the data that we need to learn to be able to scale it so if everest is this high we're going to have a handful of people be able to climb it and that's it whereas if we come up with a more correct and appropriate and proportional um, kind of regulatory path right now that will allow Dr. Yu and others to be able to um, to treat children. I hope that we learn a lot and that that actually ends up helping these children. Um, and it also then allows us to imagine moving more towards a platform approach or a process approval, um, which I, I imagine being, um, you know, grouping many diseases together, coming up with common outcome measures that are, you know, there's a lot more in common than there is, uh, you know, different between a lot of these diseases, certainly in the category of neurodegenerative diseases, a lot of kids that have different diseases look a lot like Mila. So I, I, I don't want to oversimplify it, but I do believe that it gets um, overcomplicated often by academics and companies when thinking about how to address this, like they should be grouped together. Um, and, um, and instead of bringing one car over the bridge at a time, like eventually we need to be bringing, you know, uh, uh, you know, a bus with a number of different, you know, end of ones in it, uh, you know, back and forth across. Otherwise, if we have to go one at a time, it will never scale and it's got to become faster and cheaper and and better while being safe at the same time. You talk about a, a regulatory system that was built for larger market drugs than these individualized therapies. I'm wondering on the manufacturing front, if we have a bit of the same problem, do do we need to rethink how these therapies are made and stored? Is there some scaled down manufacturing that might be 
possible, perhaps at centers of excellence rather than conventional CROs or drug makers to scale this? Yeah, that's a good question. And I will preface this by saying that I am not an expert on ASO manufacturing. Um, what I do know is that the manufacturing guidelines um, um, and, and the cost of manufacturing for ASOs is less of a problem, significantly less of a problem than for other modalities such as CRISPR um, and gene replacement therapies so or vectors. Um, it, it, like I mentioned earlier, the costs and the requirements, um, are not prohibitive right now. I do think that said that having an enormous facility that makes very large batch ASOs and utilizing that for really small, you know, tiny little, you know, <laughs> amounts that are needed for an N of one, that was a big problem with Mielison because no one had done that before. And so finding a company to actually manufacture Mielison was very hard um, because no one had made that small of, of a quantity before. Um, now things are changing and there's maybe one or two um, companies um, and I believe nonprofits that are looking at small batch ASO manufacturing. But we certainly need to move towards rethinking um, what is really needed in a small batch manufacturing facility. And as this becomes more routine, I would imagine that that it's going to be that instead of having, you know, large equipment that's made used for large amounts of ASOs, I imagine that there will be ways that are appropriate and safe to make this in in smaller batches, um, and that hopefully that will drive the cost down, um, and hopefully that the requirements for um, GMP will be once again they may need to be rethought, and and we're in the process of thinking of that right now of what. Um, what is proportionate and what is, um, uh, is, is, is correct for this new paradigm for, um, for, for GMP? And we might need to think of what does GMP look like for N of 1 ASOs? While the N equal 1 collaborative is initially focused on ASOs, it, it does talk about this as a starting point. Do you expect the work to expand into other modalities? And, and do you think the types of questions you're seeking to answer about ASOs will be applicable to other kinds of therapies? Yes, definitely. You know, I think that the the difference between the N of One Collaborative and maybe other organizations out there or companies is that it is very focused on making individualized medicine. So completely um, modality agnostic um, is making individualized medicines, you know, routine and really accessible to anyone who can benefit from them around the world. And so we're ASOs are on the table right now. That that's what was used for Mielison, and that's the the realistic modality to be using right now. And there's a lot of reasons why ASOs are perfect right now, in the sense that beyond everything I mentioned about being programmable, they also, and once again, I'm not a scientist or a doctor, but from what I've learned is that they're, um, you know, they're they 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 are well suited right now in terms of penetrating the brain very well in terms of kind of their uh, uh, safety profile is pretty well understood. And even though we're still learning about it, so they really are a very good fit right now. However, in the end of one collaborative, we have leaders in the world of CRISPR um, and they are involved. They are participants. They are, <clears throat> their voice is heard and it needs to be heard because as we continue to push forward even though ASOs are the first modality we have to be thinking about 
who is right behind us. And that is CRISPR. That could be other um, RNA therapeutics. You know, in the future, there could possibly be um, gene replacement therapy, which we're not at right now, but that could certainly be um, discussed at some point. And so there are other modalities kind of right behind us. And so as we pave the regulatory path, it's a fine line between talking about, you know, a pilot about ASOs, which makes sense because it you have to start somewhere, um, but also really keeping in mind that the bridge that we build, you know, in some ways, Mila was kind of like a rope was thrown over the river and we pulled Mila across. Now, the NF1 Collaborative is building the bridge. We need to make sure that the bridge that we're building, which is going to be maybe, you know, one lane to start with, and there's one car at a time being brought over by an academic, um, we need to make sure that that bridge is in the right place, that we're building it in the right place. We need to make sure that it can move from one lane to, you know, 50 to 1,000 lanes. And we need to make sure that it can withstand, you know, not just one car going back and forth, but, you know, buses and many of them. And um, and so I think it's really important to make sure we always consider, and we are doing that in the end of one collaborative, like I mentioned with CRISPR specifically, um, that we're always thinking about the fact that there are, this needs to be an ag, uh, a modality agnostic, a patient agnostic, a, a mutation agnostic um, uh, approach. After losing Mila, I can imagine an impulse to step away from the world of rare diseases. You continue to serve as CEO of Mila's Miracle Foundation and, and helped establish the N equal one collaborative. What drives you to do this? Yeah, you know, this is a, a good question. You know, I, my life was ripped apart, you know, by everything I went through with Mila leading up to her diagnosis. Um, you know, and even with Mila and, you know, I went from being told my daughter was going to die to then within a year being given this incredible hope, um, which was also, I would just a caveat there is that the expectations were set very correctly by Dr. Yu and his team. Um, we knew it was a long shot, but we also, it looked very promising. And in fact, it was in the first year. I mean, it stopped Mila's disease and there was lots of improvements, um, you know, but then from there kind of went crashing down when I saw that, you know, after three years, it wasn't um, stopping her disease and that she was having some problems like her hip coming out of her, you know, socket of her hip, you know, because of bad disease. And that ended up in pain and, and, and forced a lot of very difficult decisions kind of at the end of her life. Um, and so I've been on this roller coaster ride and over the course of this, because Mila's story has been in the spotlight, I've gotten to know just such enormous amount of rare disease parents across many, many diseases. And I hear from the ones that have children with neurodegenerative diseases. And of course I can relate to all them and listening to the stories of their children getting worse and worse and not being able to find treatments, even if the, you know, treatment might even be there. I hear stories of biotech companies shelving, you know, rare disease treatments right before they're going to start them or after they've begun because they don't meet what they consider to be, you know, uh, the, the expectation of probability of success, even if maybe that's helping children, you know, live longer. Um, and it's just such a devastating world of rare disease right now. I see a lot of hope and promise, but I also see a lot of broken pieces. And I see in the case of Mila and the case of individualized medicines, um, 
I just see that the current way we're going right now of working gene by gene and these just massive hurdles that have to happen, you know, in order to give access to children that are dying or have lifelong debilitating diseases, it's, there's just so many things that are not, they're not ethically okay with me. And I feel an enormous sense of responsibility that I'm not fighting for my daughter anymore. Um, um, but I am fighting with her kind of right by my side because, you know, every day I, I, I have moments every day where I cry. Um, I am learning to live, you know, I am divorced. I have my, my son half of the time now. So instead of having a family, you know, that's doing happy, fun things in Colorado, I have, my daughter has died. I have an empty bedroom of hers and I have an eight-year-old son who I see half the time. And, you know, I, I see all of these millions of families out there of which little to nothing is being done for them because they're not commercially viable and they have to start, you know, foundations and raise millions of dollars. And, and, and so I just feel an enormous sense of responsibility to do my part in this, which is not going to fix everything, but is to say, look, if there really are millions of people who, who could, um, uh, benefit from eventually benefit from an individualized medicine approach, which Mila's story has kind of shown is possible now. And we know that diagnoses are going up and that, that more and more and more, especially children, but, but adults as well are being diagnosed with rare diseases. And even those that are not fatal, you know, in some ways that's even harder because for the rest of your life for decades, that entire family will like never be able to live a normal life in many cases, nor will the child. And, and I look at it and it's, it seems to me that it's not acceptable and it's not okay that we have the technology and we have the patients and that there is not access between the two. And so I would like to do my part to be part of the various solutions to making that happen. One of them is the end of one collaborative, which is fundamental. And, and I try to do my part at complementing the voices of the incredible scientists and researchers and doctors that are part of that. Um, I am part of an initiative to see if there's a viable business model, which is extremely difficult right now. Um, and once again, I am not, um, you know, a biotech or a, a CEO or an investor, but I do my part in that to make sure that we're doing the best we can to make that um, viable business and reimbursement model possible. And then, you know, I'm doing my part in, in, in trying to make sure that this regulatory path, that they really understand how fundamental this is. And to me, this concept of meal to millions, we really need to understand that it's not morally okay that we're not giving access to this. And we have to come up with a path, whether it be a modernized or entirely new regulatory path. And it cannot happen in five years or 10 years. It needs to happen now because we've been talking about it for four years. So I'm trying to do my part in these three different solutions to the problem. Um, and uh, I just feel a huge responsibility. And I was given that because of my daughter of Mila and, and she opened up this world to me and um, she fought hard. And so if she fought, you know, I can fight too. So that's kind of why I'm still in it. Julia Vitarello, CEO of Mila's Miracle Foundation and co-founder of the N Equal One Collaborative. Julia, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Danny. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. 
You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com. <laughs>